Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. In this episode, we're going to look at questions around the ethical, legal, and business risks surrounding so-called generative AI and synthetic media, and the opportunity that exists if they are employed responsibly. The first segment features Matthew Ferraro, an attorney at the firm Wilmer Hale, who counsels clients about such risks. And the second segment features Claire Leibowitz from the Partnership on AI and Sam Gregory from the human rights organization Witness, who work together with other partners to develop a set of responsible practices for synthetic media. First up, Matthew Ferraro. I'm Matthew Ferraro. I'm a counsel at the law firm Wilmer Hale. Matthew, you have a kind of special expertise in synthetic media. Uh, Now folks are starting to talk about this phrase, generative AI. Can you tell me a little bit about your career as a lawyer and your interest in this space? So I've had a, a bit of a circuitous career. Law is actually my second career. I started my uh, my professional life as an intelligence officer in the U.S. government. I worked for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and the CIA here in the Washington, D.C. area. I then went to law school when I was 29 years old. Um, and I should say when I was in government, uh, the, Russia invaded Georgia and South Ossetia, and there was a large information operation around that invasion. So I just set that aside. I go to law school, I go work, uh, I clerk, I then go to Wilmer. And while I'm at Wilmer, I write a piece with a former CIA colleague of mine about information operations, particularly around the 2016 election, but it was an area of interest for all those years. And after I finished that piece, I'm now you know, a lawyer in private practice. So I start to think to myself, gee, this is an issue that businesses should be worried about, private practice, business should be worried about, companies should be concerned about. And I start to realize that it is, in fact, kind of a business risk, especially in the internet age and with the rise of social media. And just as I'm getting into that and writing about that, counseling on that, synthetic media or deep fakes start to enter the public consciousness because of a video by Jordan Peele of Barack Obama, or looked like Barack Obama, although it wasn't him. And so then I started to realize that synthetic media was like an accelerant, was this extraordinarily potent danger for disinformation. And so I started to focus more on synthetic media, deep fakes, the emerging laws around that, and talking to clients both about the negative externalities, how those synthetic media could harm them, and also for companies that want to use or create synthetic media, how to do so in a legal and ethical way. And then it's all sort of of a piece. So with synthetic media, uh, it's you take a large data set, you run it through an algorithm, and you create something new. And that's exactly what happens also in chatbots and other forms of generative AI, still images, for instance. And so what I was learning about synthetic media, I was applying as well to chatbots. And I would just say about my legal practice, I I use a a bumper sticker to sort of describe what I do because I feel like it's hard to understand. So I always say that I work at the intersection of national security, cybersecurity, emerging technologies, and crisis management. So that brings us to this piece, which I had the opportunity to publish at Tech Policy Press, 10 Legal and Business Risks of Chatbots and Generative AI. Uh, Tell me how this came together. Uh, You're not the only person on the byline here. This looks like it was a a team effort. Yes, yes, it was. Yeah, no, I should. I want to first of all, acknowledge you, Justin. Thank you so much for, for, for running it. It's a great honor to be featured in Tech Policy Press. And I was honored to co-author this piece with Natalie Lee, Haisha Lin, and Louis Tompros. And let me also give shout outs to the people who read the piece while it was in draft, Ali Jassani, Kirk Nara, Barry Hurwitz, Becca Lee, and also let me thank Ariana Ashby, who helped uh, from the marketing department get it all through the the editing. Uh, So it was a team effort, uh, a labor of love. So this came about, honestly, with inquiries from clients. Because let's set the stage, ChatGPT got 100 million users in two months. It's just simply unheard of. And every organization is now having to think about the dangers of using them, the potential upside, the legal risk, what use is permissible, what is impermissible, how does it enhance work product, 
How does it deprecate work product? When does it not enhance it? And so we were starting to get inquiries from clients about this and specifically about whether or not we had put out what was often called thought leadership or pieces about this because I do write about synthetic media. And I had honestly been thinking about it, but didn't really have the time to put pen to paper. But I suppose when you know there's interest, you find the time. And so with my colleagues, we we wrote this. We And I was thinking about how best to frame it, right? Because I was like, how can we say something about this that's a little bit different? And I thought of the narrative conceit of 10 risks or of, of risks. And actually, we were trying to think of the number of risks. Uh, and we we started at seven, we got to 10, and then we were coming up with more. And I realized we just had to cap it, partly for narrative reasons. But I do think that that is indicative of how fraught this technology is, how amazing and beneficial it can be for sure. But I get paid to think about risk. And so how fraught the risks are and how companies should be thinking about them. So really, that's how it started. It came together rather quickly. Uh, I think from idea to finished product, it was probably a week and a half. And yeah, and, and we and I you'll notice in the piece that it's actually in alphabetical order because I thought it would be. It, I tried to think about ranking them, like which risk is greater and and lesser. And the truth is, it's so context dependent that I thought it would just be easier to do it uh, to do it as an alphabetical order. Well, let's run through them then. I guess mm-hmm. in both numeric and alphabetical order, um, <laughs> let's just let's just touch on each one. First sure. is contract risks. What are the contract risks with chatbots or other similar AI tools? Sure. So I think the way to start thinking about this is that information provided to the chatbot in the prompt, or if it's a different kind of AI, if it's an image that you submit, cannot be thought of as private, right? You have to think of that information as public. And that's usually because the chatbot uses the data that you input to train itself and to learn and to and so it is in fact then public to the chatbot and might somehow show up in the end product of of somebody else's entry. So when you realize that the information that you put into the chatbot is public, then you start to recognize that you have contract risk problems. And that's because businesses will usually have contracts with customers or clients or partners in which the business agrees to abide by certain information protection regimes, if you will, controls. And so they might be putting into the chatbot information uh, from a client, maybe to summarize, let's say summarize some long document from the client. Well, that document might be subject to contractual controls. And if you're sharing it with a third party, you might be exposing yourself, if you're the company that's putting into the chatbot, uh, to, to litigation risk, to risk that a client will say, hey, you're violating the contract. That's sort of the main legal risk. I would certainly say there's another one, which is that if you're contracted to work on a project and it's like you, Justin, and then you ask the AI to do it, it's conceivable that that violates the contract. If like they're hiring you specifically and the chatbot does the work, I would at least flag that as a consideration. And finally, to the extent that the chatbot generates contract work product, it could in some circumstances be considered a subcontractor. And if that's the case, it would require pre-approval from the ultimate customer. Let's hit cybersecurity risks. There's the possibility that chatbots could uh, introduce cybersecurity risk. Uh, you see that along two main axes. That's right. Uh, the, the first is that malicious users can use the chatbot to create programming. And so you can actually converse with the chatbot in conversational style, and the chatbot will spit out code. And that code could be malware. And I should say that several of these chatbots that are popular, they they have these functions where it makes it, if you say, you know, write me a hacker code, it will say no. But there's been some research by Recorded Future, which is a cybersecurity company that shows that you can basically trick the chatbot into creating this code anyway, get a, basically get around the, the, the prohibition with a workaround, and then it just creates the malware for you. So that's that's like the first axis. And, and the second axis is that it can create very believable uh, speech, human speech. And this is particularly dangerous for social media attacks and phishing emails, particularly if the bad actor doesn't speak English as a first language. So typically this would be a burden, right? And we've all seen this in emails that we've gotten 
uh, in spam, spam or phishing, where it's pretty obviously not an English speaker. So it's not going to be what, like the Social Security Administration or your uncle who uh, who wants you to send him a $500 so that you can inherit his 50 million or, or so forth. If it's able to create at scale these sorts of believable spam and phishing emails, that poses a cybersecurity risk. Next up is data privacy risk. This one almost seems obvious on its face. Uh, ChatGPT does have a privacy policy. What is it collecting? What might we be concerned about with regard to existing legislation and law in some states? What are the data privacy risks? Right. And so I, th- I think it's important to distinguish why this is different than contract risk. So in contract risk, I'm worried about what a, pr- a private party might sue me for if I misuse their data and their information in a chat bot. In data privacy risk, we're worried about the government or public entities. And you know, laws in the US and Europe impose restrictions on the sharing of certain personal information about or obtained from people, what are called data subjects. And so businesses using chatbots or integrating them into their products should proceed carefully because those rules will apply if you're using the chatbot to share or obtain information about individuals. And I mean, it, it really is far. We, we noted one law in California that unless an entity is registered as a data broker, and I think it's fair to say that these chatbots are not. The, the entity is supposed to provide notice of collection to any California resident about whom it's collecting data. And remember, the chatbots, they crawl across the internet to collect the data sets that they use to run through the algorithm or on which the algorithm is trained. It's a better way of thinking about it. And so I, I have to say, I, I'm not sure what they do about that. And I, I sort of flag that as a consideration for people building large language models and also those people who are using them. Let's talk next about deceptive trade practice risks. So what could using a chatbot or another AI-generated product do to make me run afoul of the FTC? Yeah, so the Federal Trade Commission has been very clear that transparency is key here. And if an employee you know, outsources work to a chatbot or an AI software when a consumer believes that she is dealing with a human or if an AI-generated product is marketed as a human, those sorts of things could be misrepresentations under deceptive trade practice law, which is both federal, but also states have many different different analogs. And so both the FTC and the White House, which has put out a blueprint for uh, what they call an AI bill of rights, emphasize the importance of clear descriptions if you're using chatbots. And so I think that's clear if, if you're, and this actually happens a lot, so I am surprised that this isn't more widely addressed. If you're using a chatbot to handle customer support on your website, it's just so much easier to say, hey, I'm, I'm using it. This is a chatbot. Or if there's some sort of, if you purchase, say, a product and the product is that you're going to be engaging with a chatbot, be sure to tell people upfront. And in the piece, we flag a couple of instances where this occurred in the past, you know, like with the FTC alleged that a defendant sold phony followers to people to boost their social media profiles, or where Ashley Madison, the the sort of adultery website, deceived customers by using fake engager profiles. Both of those examples the FTC used when issuing their guidance on AI and saying, this is the kind of thing that people need to to worry about and why companies should be so transparent about the, the use of these sorts of tools. Well, you mentioned that you didn't rank these risks by necessarily their severity or or on some other axis. But if you do look at the text, there are two sections that are longer than the others. And the next one is one that is longer than the others. And that is discrimination risks. Yes. So discrimination risks, sometimes called bias risk. This is longer, partly because this is an area in which the government has written a lot of guidance. And so we want to make sure to address that. There are basically two ways to think about bias in these sorts of prompts. I, I mean, I, there I say only two. Of course, you know, the idea of algorithmic discrimination, the discrimination of algorithms against in, you know, certain groups or individuals is longstanding, you know, responsible, responsible design, responsibility by design, safety by design. These are all things that are huge topics. But in the way that I boiled it down, we sort of focused on two different kinds of discrimination risk. The first is the bias that results because of biased 
data. And there are a lot of examples of this. The one that we cite is that in 2018, Amazon wanted to use an AI-based recruitment tool. So they had the AI read CVs, resumes from, I, I think it was like thousands of prior candidates who had been hired over a 10-year period, probably more than thousands actually, and then make recommendations about employee about new employees or new potential employees. And what they found was that it preferred, the AI did, it had taught itself to prefer male candidates over female candidates because over the tenure, the prior 10-year period, more men had been hired than women. That was a biased data set. It didn't reflect their actual abilities. And of course, they don't want it, they don't want a system that is going to privilege men over women. Uh, that could run into all kinds of problems, both ethical and legal. So they couldn't use that. And that is sort of like a classic example of not wanting to use AI systems that in a way that's going to create a biased outcome. And the second is the the idea that users can purposely manipulate AI systems to produce prejudicial outputs, you know, outputs that express a prejudice. And there have been a couple of examples, or more than a couple, several examples online where people, you know, got the chatbot to say nice things about Hitler or say racist things. And that just poses a risk if you're a company and you incorporate a chatbot into your system and then users make it say racist things and then that's associated with your platform that just that, that becomes a reputational problem and then in the piece we do talk about how federal regulators the white house the ftc have all emphasized the importance of building ai systems that do not express bias and are not having a discriminatory impact regardless of the intention and so we had a couple ideas for how companies that are using ai could do that best. And you know, they they include conducting regular testing, imposing a human in the process. So they could literally just have a human eyes on what they're producing, review obviously the data set that's going into the system and making sure that they comply with anti-discrimination laws and also these sort of reputational concerns. Number six is probably one of the more straightforward ones. This is the disinformation risks. You know, I feel like on this show we've talked about these issues, of course, in the past, we talk about disinformation and misinformation issues all the time. Folks are probably fairly aware of you know, what the risks are in a political context, et cetera. But for businesses, what should they be concerned about? Oh, yeah. So this is an area that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I, I do work with clients. And there's a saying, uh, a client of mine called Alethea uses this. And they say uh, disinformation is the new malware. And by that, they mean it is just this sort of danger out there that poses a, a danger out there that for businesses, because it can harm their reputations because of the way in which narratives can spread across the internet. And they can be about their brands, about brand safety, about their CEO, and they can just say negative and harmful things. The world being what it is, it can lead to brand boycotts in extreme situations like death threats, bomb threats, that sort of thing. So. The disinformation risk of something like ChatGPT or any kind of generative AI is the scale at which it can create believable falsity. And so in the ChatGPT context, it's the idea that it can create really believable text as if it was written by a human. In the piece, I use the example of Wayfair, the furniture seller, which a couple of years ago got caught up in the QAnon theory because of the name of some of their furniture pieces were the same as the names of missing children. And people started to say that Wayfair was involved in human trafficking, which all sounds you know, bizarre. However, it dominated online conversations about Way Wayfair for months. People tried to short the stock, orchestrate a massive short sale, sale of the stock. They posted the company headquarters online. They posted photos of the CEO. So yeah, it caused a real damage to the company. And that was all human created text. Now you can imagine like literally tens of millions of posts that are created at scale by ChatGPT could be very easy to do and targeting some other company. So that could have real reputational impact. And then if you sort of widen the aperture a little bit further and say, wow, what if you did this with video, with uh, imagery, a video say showing the CEO doing something untoward on the eve of a product launch or something like that, that could cause a short in the stock, a, a drop in the stock, and maybe the the bad actor had taken out a short position so that they then reap a product because of this 
false narrative about the company. So I do think it's a it's a major issue for business and one that's probably only going to get worse. That and I assume you know uh, some of the more straightforward cases of fraud that we've seen, uh, you know, scammery, illegal transactions, things of that nature that have been done with synthetic audio, especially. Yes, that's right. I mean, the the way that I talk about deepfakes and synthetics in business with with business risk is I talk about it reputational harm, which is sort of the way, for example, uh, market manipulation, which is the shorting of stocks and things like that because they make people think that the stock uh, there's you know something deadly in the the the, the autonomous vehicle goes you know roaring off a, a, a highway and bursts into flames and it's a phony video but that then causes a drop in the stock price of the AV company and then the third would be social engineering fraud right the idea that you get on a Zoom call and you think it's with the tech support guy but it's not because he's been deep faked and he asks for your username and password and you give it to him and then he he, t- he takes off with you know millions of dollars or you get a phone call right this is this has been uh, reported elsewhere you get a phone call you think it's from a trusted person uh, and it turns out that she is an impersonator and you've you know wired money to some bank account on her behalf number 7 and 8 are somewhat straightforward you've got ethical risks so you call out specifically companies regulated by professional ethics organizations that includes yourself lawyers doctors mm-hmm. accountants they have to be careful that ai comports with their professional obligations Government contract risks, that's number eight. Um, you know, if you're doing business with the US government and probably other governments, you need to read those uh, contract terms and compliance requirements really close to make sure using some kind of synthetic tool or chat GPT type tool is not going to essentially break the terms of that contract. Mm-hmm. So talk to your lawyer. Uh, that's good news for you. Um <laughs> But then we get to number nine, and this is one of the longest ones again, yes. uh, intellectual property risks. It is long and it is dynamic. So people just don't know the answers to these questions. And so I should, I should, I should have said this at the, the top, Justin, you know, uh, I'm giving general legal advice. Obviously, people should talk to their lawyers, particularly around something like this, because intellectual property risk can arise in several ways around uh, generative AI. The first is because the AI systems are trained on enormous amounts of data, that data will likely, certainly in this day, the way it is today, likely include third-party data, data that is owned by another party. And that could be patents, trademarks, copyrights. And the the, the AI model, because it has crawled across the internet, has not gotten authorization to study that data. And so the output of the AI systems may infringe the intellectual property rights of the rights holders of the material that was fed into the system. And and there's ongoing litigation as we speak. And I go through a couple of the cases in the piece and it's about code, you know, was the code that was uh, sucked up, copyrighted. It's about imagery. Was the imagery that it sucked up copyrighted and is the stuff that comes out on the back end fair use? Has it been you know, appropriately transformed or does it still infringe rights? Uh, and it's we just do not yet know. So that's the first big bucket. The, the second is that disputes may arise over who owns the thing that is generated, the IP that is generated by the AI system, particularly if multiple people contribute to it. And this is an area where the terms of use are kind of all over the map of these systems. Some say that the right title and interest of the output belongs to the users. Uh, other uh, generative AI systems say something like that, but say that the, the user has to use it in only certain ways. Uh, they can't commercialize it. Others say yet that the, the system has a license to the material that is output. And very few people, I think it's fair to say, read the terms of service before they start mucking around with these systems. And that's an area where essentially it's contract law, but it's ve- it's going to be very interesting to see what becomes sort of the professional norm or the industry norm on this sort of thing. So that is like who owns the output when lots of things go into it. And the third, and it's somewhat related to what I was just talking about, is what happens when the IP generated by the AI is like completely the work of the AI system. Here, the the thinking of like the US authorities, the US Copyright Office, as of today, as we're recording this podcast in early March of 2023, 
is that that is uncopyrightable. Like you have to be a human to copyright something. For example, the monkey that took a selfie of himself could not register a copyright in the photograph. A, a, a copyright has to be the result of human authorship. So right now, unless there's some human involved, it can't be copyrighted, so says the U.S. authorities. But all this stuff is very hot. It's, it's active. It's changing right now. It's honestly the importance of uh, of talking to lawyers, not to be sound self-serving, but that's basically the point. I'd love to, you know, talk about that with you further at some point, you know, mm-hmm. ideas I've looked at, for instance, uh, Mark Limley at Stanford, his ideas about fair use yes. in AI. Um, don't know how you feel about that, uh, where we'll end up with, you know, whether these data sets will be regarded as a kind of open trove. Uh, the internet is simply an open trove to train AIs, uh, or in fact, some of these claims that entities are bringing against firms like Stability or uh, I'm sure eventually ChatGPT, uh, whether any of those will have any grounds. If I had to guess, and I want to be clear that I'm really just whiteboarding here, I think we'll move at some point over time to where a lot of the copyrighted material online will be coded at the at the metadata level with some kind of spoiler so that if it is picked up by uh, an AI system in the crawl, it will not be processed properly absent, so it basically can't be used, absent some kind of remuneration. And then it becomes a bit like Spotify, right? Where everybody gets like, you know, five fifteenths of a cent or something like that every time it's it's read by a, a, a large language model or a stability AI, a mid-journey, that sort of thing. Uh, that's what I imagine, like where I imagine we'll go. And part of the reason, Justin, is because what is the purpose of copyright law, right? The purpose of copyright law is you want to incentivize creativity, and if people think that they can't uh, that they can't protect what they make and make a living off of it or control it or you know have some sense that this is uh, this is a Justin Hendricks art and it's not going to just be reproduced without your consent by some machine, then you're not going to create the art. And I think that so I think the purpose of copyright is going to then marry up with technology to create that kind of outcome. But we, we shall see. Number 10 is one of the shortest uh, validation risks. And yet, in many ways, it seems like one of the biggest to me in terms of the possible implications of it. Right. Uh, So this is the area that essentially these systems sometimes make authoritative sounding statements uh, that are otherwise what they refer to as hallucinations. Mm -hmm. Um, Remember, these are fundamentally bullshit generators. They're just predicting words. They don't know things. Um, So they're very likely to spit out misinformation trying to satisfy uh, the user prompt. Uh, So, you know, I mean, you could imagine all manner of problems that would emerge from that, all manner of slight inconsistencies that could lead to really big problems. Yeah. I mean, the bottom line is you can't trust them. I mean, that, that's kind of a big deal. Right? I mean, here's, a, here's a tool, but you can't trust. I mean, I suppose the analogy would be if you're using a word processor and you couldn't trust the spell check if the spelling was right or wrong, right? I mean, that's kind of the idea. And so if you're a company and you want your employees to use a chatbot, I think the question has got to be what kind of policy are you going to have in place? What kind of procedures to double check the chatbot? Because it's not going, it's not self-aware, as you said. It doesn't know if it's lying or not. And it's not going to, and there are some circumstances where it tell you it doesn't know, but much more often, as we know from using these models, uh, it will just create something that sounds very authoritative, but it'll be wrong. And there are lots of examples of that, of a chatbot saying that the Webb telescope was the first telescope to discover a planet outside the solar system when that's not true. And they get logic puzzles wrong and they flub mathematical problems and all that sort of stuff. So in some ways, that just gets to the the our, our biggest piece of advice really is to be careful and be circumspect in the adoption of chatbots. And part of it is because they err. I predict we'll see a thriving startup scene in creating validation tools uh, yes. on top of these systems that we'll see you know, lots of like specific use case validation tools that make it possible for a human to have the advantage of the time-saving aspects of using these systems and yet can also very quickly go through and validate the output 
check it, fact check it, look for named entities, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- that will actually be a, a way to make money. And and footnotes. I mean, you know, I, I was taught long ago that you footnote everything. And one of the benefits of doing a Google search or a big search, if you will, is that you can read the website where you get the information. You can you can see if it's legitimate, if it's something you trust, if it's a validated source. And I feel like the same has just got to be true with, true with chatbots. When it spits out something, it needs to tell you where it got it from so that you can double check. But I do think that that's part of the problem when it comes from so many different locations and it's kind of melded together. And then, as you say, it just essentially predicts what the next word in the sequence is. And we'll see. I know there are startups working on that. Neva.ai mm-hmm. is one of the search, search startups working on that. I believe Bing is working on that, of course, too. Um, and I'm sure Google is. We'll see what happens uh, down the line. Um, you, in this piece with a set of suggestions, I will encourage folks to go check this out at techpolicy.press. I want to thank you, Matthew, for taking the time to speak to me about this and to you and your colleagues for putting it together. I think it's a great resource. And I hope that we can maybe come back together, talk about some of those additional risks that you identified that weren't included on the list, as well as uh, some of the implications. And you know, ultimately, I'm sure the lawsuits that will no doubt come. Absolutely. Um, that is actually the number 11 risk was the one that the one that got left on the cutting room floor as we were going was litigation risk. Because in, in, in addition to everything else, everything you put in a chatbot, probably going to be discoverable. So, so be aware of that too. Uh, but it's been a real pleasure speaking with you, Justin. Thank you again so much for running the piece. We're honored to have been in your pages. Thank you. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast and subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. Next up, we'll dig into the Partnership on AI Responsible Practices for Synthetic Media Framework. Claire Leibowitz from the Partnership on AI, where I am the head of the AI and Media Integrity Program. And I'm Sam Gregory from the Human Rights Video and Technology Network Witness. I'm pleased that two of you can join me today to talk through the responsible practices for synthetic media framework for collective action, which you published this week out of the partnership on AI. I think maybe just start with a little explanation of how the two of you ended up working on this together, what the partnership does and you know what its constituent entities are, and Sam, how you got wrapped up in this. But Claire, maybe I'll throw it to you to start. Thanks, Justin. So the Partnership on AI is a global multi-stakeholder nonprofit devoted to the development of best practices around responsible AI. And our origin story reveals a lot about how folks like Sam and Witness have gotten involved over the years. So a little over five years ago, the heads of AI research at some of the largest technology companies, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, DeepMind, IBM, Microsoft, and Google, came together recognizing that many of the social impacts of technology they're building transcend any one industry or sector, and that there needed to be multi-stakeholder collaboration, meaning institutions from civil society, academia, other parts of industry, and media and journalism to tackle the challenges that AI may pose. We have over 100 partners from those different sectors. And when we launched work around social and societal influences of this technology, we saw AI-generated content as a really meaningful area ripe for multi-stakeholder collaboration. So a little over four years ago, we started working around these questions of how does AI-generated content affect things like privacy, democracy, belief in evidence or truth. And that's how we involved Sam as a leader in that work and Witness early on, as they've been doing a lot in that space. So Sam, uh, with Witness, you're you're one of you know many partners. If, you know, looking at the partners page on Partnership on AI's website, it's you know the ACLU, BBC, Article 19, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Intel, OpenAI, the New York Times, Wikimedia. I mean, it's really a who's who of both tech, but also a lot of academic entities and, and entities concerned with human rights. And I assume that's where you come in. 
Yes. So Witness um, is a, a global human rights network. We work with journalists and human rights defenders around the world who are using, you know, the, the combination of video and technology to document and advocate. Uh, it means we work with ordinary people and professional human rights defenders who are taking out their cell phones and documenting and sharing the truth. And for 10 years or so, we have been working on issues around authenticity and trust in that media, right? It's the, the accounts and the stories of human rights defenders are the first to be targeted by claims of lies um, and the increasing prevalence of the fake news phenomenon it targets them. And so when we were four or five years ago assessing the risks that were emerging for the most vulnerable truth tellers in our societies, we identified the advent of AI-generated media as an, a potential threat. And so uh, we began the first global initiative to prepare, but not to panic around synthetic media and AI-generated media in 2018. And it included a series of convenings to bring together grassroots activists and journalists and movement leaders and technologists to really identify uh, the threats they saw in this new phenomenon, how they linked it to the current problems they had and the solutions they wanted. And a critical part of that as well was how do we link to other coalitions, networks that are really trying to address this from a holistic perspective. And so uh, we joined the partnership on AI uh, early on and were a, a key partner in this synthetic media initiative because we saw its close linkage to the work we were doing in this Prepare Don't Panic initiative and the need to engage a whole range of stakeholders, of stakeholders if you're genuinely going to try and do the type of work that is preemptive on infrastructure, standards, norms, and policies uh, before it's too late, frankly, for a lot of marginalized communities. Um, and we collaborated with the Partnership on AI on a number of uh, very pivotal early meetings that brought people together on this, including one with the BBC. And so uh, it was very natural to start thinking, what are the ways in which we can work together um, on, on the various strategies and tactics that you have to use to prepare better for the, for the potential harms and the potential benefits of AI-generated media and synthetic media. Before we move on, let's pause on that. Let's pause on what you see as the potential benefits, because you know a listener perhaps that's new to this might look at this and say, oh, you know, Sam, you're concerned about human rights. You're concerned about media manipulation. And here you are partnered with all of the companies which are making media manipulation possible at great scale in a way that perhaps has never been possible before. Um, so how do you think about that question? I know you spent years thinking about it. So I think there's two sides to that question. The first is and um, the reality that most of the people we center and serve and support and witness um, use the frameworks made by these companies. They use the tools that are built in Silicon Valley um, and regulated by policies in Brussels and DC. Um, and they have zero say in those tools or in the infrastructure. And so there's a pragmatic need to make sure their concerns are reflected in these types of emerging technologies and that we have a really strong human rights basis for the tools of authenticity and trust and media creation. The, the other side of it is there is also, and I work in an organization that's been sitting squarely in this explosion of uh, diverse creativity that's come out of um, you know, the ability of people to create and share media, right? Um, the ability of people to create videos, to be both creators, but also advocates using that media. And so it's also important to us to say, as you see potentially another explosion in creativity, uh, that could enable many more people to tell compelling stories, both for information and social justice purposes, that those tools are built with them in mind, um, and that the ethics and norms around them reflect core fundamentals that don't change around consent, around trust and authenticity, around uh, the ability to protect others from harm and to enhance your own voice. So it's uh, our instincts come from both sides, a pragmatic reality that um, many people may not like, and we may resent sometimes as well, uh, and also a more optimistic realization of the power of these tools to enable more people to be creative and diverse storytellers and advocates. So let's talk a little bit about what you set out to do with this document. It's not an enormous document, relatively slim, uh, seven-page framework, uh, but what is the purpose of this document, Claire? What, what do you hope that it will achieve in the world? 
So in essence, the framework is a way for the synthetic media field to take collective action and orient around what Sam was describing as this shared set of values. And in doing so, that will enable the field, whether it's a creator or the person building the technical infrastructure that others use, or even those distributing the content to design more responsible technical solutions and policies moving forward. And in doing so, as Sam described, we want to ensure that we can make there be greater hurdles to the harmful use cases that might disempower, disenfranchise, and also to bolster the capacity for creativity or knowledge sharing and commentary. And to us, we also wanted to assert how this might look different industry to industry and player to player, and kind of the importance of many different types of institutions in enabling this responsible future for synthetic media. So for instance, if you take a major online dating platform like Bumble, who's in our um, initial cohort of launch partners, they might be dealing with very different technical and policy and ethical questions than say OpenAI who provides infrastructure or software for those creating synthetic media or the BBC, which might both be experimenting with an AI avatar to increase engagement for its audiences and at the same time be really perhaps frightened by this potential world in which um, synthetic material might be an input to what a breaking news story is ostensibly based on. And to us, so the framework is reflecting this reality that as the technology advances, we need to stay one step ahead as a field. And the idea is it's a living document. So it starts with an initial set of practices around transparency, disclosure, consent, some of those key themes that Sam articulated. But we also want it to build over time as the technology becomes more advanced and also to embed other ethical considerations ranging from the future of work implications for this technology to even some of the meaning of what creativity looks like in this generative AI age. And the idea is that anyone who joins the effort and it's organized around three discrete but also overlapping stakeholder groups, those building technology and infrastructure, creators and distributors, both publishers and potentially social media platforms, and any institution that joins this framework effort, and this was a really meaningful part of the process, will contribute a case example each year to describe both how they're thinking of implementing the policies or, or framework norms in policy practice or product, and also big questions like what are the organizational impediments to actually achieving those goals? So the framework is an attempt to go beyond just merely do no harm, which often gets touted in AI principles, to delineate values, and then to build upon those as a field that's more diverse than the typical players to better attend to actual intervention points in the technology and build out this body of case material to help us operationalize what's in it. So one of the things that you get onto in your practices for builders, the technology and, and infrastructure um, is, as you say, transparency, but also building in essentially forensic signals, uh, you know, mechanisms that would make it possible to identify the provenance of, of certain media, various kind of ideas there about, I suppose, fingerprints and watermarks and cryptographically bound provenance, as you've put it. How many of your members are, are presently developing systems that do these things? So Adobe is a key leader who's developing these systems. So there's an initiative that Witness, I think, and PAI both are involved in called the Coalition for Content Provenance and Authenticity, the Linux Foundation effort to bake in a standard cryptographic mechanism for tracing a piece of content. So baked into the actual a uh, visual artifact could be some signal of that content's authenticity. So to quantify who's developing that, I think many that we've been involved in beyond the initial list are exploring those and who are going to likely join the effort down the line. And Adobe has been a key leader in that as well, alongside the BBC, the CBC, Witness, and several others on the list. I see that you also have, of course, practices for creators, uh, some straightforward things about being transparent, informed consent around the subjects of manipulated content. Of course, that's a major problem. I suppose maybe, what, 90% of the uh, synthetic media that's presently on the internet is, is likely non-consensual pornography. Is, is this really one of those things where, unfortunately, the practices for creators are somewhat written for people who would care 
obviously there are a lot of bad actors out there. In a sense that this is often, yes, we're starting with an initial group of actors who have an interest in, quote unquote, doing the right thing. But hopefully it will set precedent for one, you know, at the back end level or the infrastructure level signals that might make it easier to see when content has been manipulated, perhaps even by a bad actor. And there's a hope that some of these principles will be embedded down the line in some regulation or legislative activity. So how do we actually bake in some accountability mechanism for those who don't do this, for example, down the line? Um, so while it's starting and coalescing a group of people who might be interested in doing the right thing, the hope is if you galvanize that momentum across a broader group, you can apply pressure to the field and down the line for capital P policymaking beyond this lowercase p policymaking to help alleviate some of the concerns that you just brought up. And I'm sure Sam has meaningful thoughts on this as well. A couple of observations in relation to, to what we're addressing here. And, and I think it's also important to, to address potential concerns people might have about um, thinking about these types of frameworks. One reason we got involved, and I think it's it's a key strength of the framework, is one of the things we heard when we did global consultations and we talked to activists and journalists and communities uh, on five continents was don't place the burden on us to do all of this. Whether we're doing it in a responsible way, we're trying to communicate we've done synthesis, or whether we're trying to detect someone who's done this in a malicious way, right? Exactly to your question, uh, Justin. So we need to have an emphasis on the roles of the builders of the technology, the distributors, and the creators. And of course, some creators won't use this responsibly, but at least then they have the tools available to potentially do so. And I think it's important, and it goes back to what I was saying about creativity at the start, to recognize that we're going to move into a more complex media creation world at an individual level, right? You can see it you know, in kind of the way people are grappling with the latest filters on TikTok, right? You know, the bold glamour filter, you know, sort of making people feel uncertain, right? They're watching videos, they're seeing something, they know that there's an AI effect, they can't quite see it in the ways they expected before. We're going to get a much more complex way in which we create media. And so providing the tools across this pipeline and really pushing for a framework that works across the pipeline reflects many of the things we were told. Don't place the onus on just the person at the end who's trying to use it um, in an effective way as an activist or a communicator. Other things that I think are really key in this, and um, just to really add to what Claire described, is I think we also want to recognize that there are gray areas in this, um, that this kind of document wants to actually point to those gray areas and say, let's really put our eyes on this. So a good example is satire. It's an area that we've spent a lot of time working on. It's the place where deepfakes are sometimes weaponized, uh, but also used for incredibly important pro-social purposes. And it's a place also to point ahead to some of the regulatory dilemmas that uh, Claire is describing, where really putting a focus as communities, companies, actors across this spectrum, we need to start really grappling with that, right? Like, how do we think about these gray areas? How do we, how do we deal with them in effective ways that may also help us identify ways in which they can or cannot be regulated? And I'm, I'm not proposing that we regulate satire, to be absolutely clear in this moment, but just saying it really casts an eye on or a light on how to do this. The other thing that I think is really important, and for us, it's uh, been a particularly important point in the uh, in the focus on on the disclosure element, Justin, which you highlight this uh, discussion of how you show how media was made and where it came from, um, is to really focus on how we do that right. I think this is an area that, for some people, can reflexively set alarm bells ringing. Right, the idea of uh, tracing—it's a verb that's sometimes used around this, and Claire used it of disclosure, of provenance. We came into conversations that have been in parallel to this, the conversations that Claire was describing with the Coalition for Content Provenance and Authenticity, coming very much with the concerns we heard from exactly the same grassroots activists, groups, dissidents around, well, we'd like to know where media comes from, but don't make that dependent, for example, on sharing identity or personally disclosing information or ways in which you can track me or ways it might be weaponized. And I think it's an important element of what you're seeing in the disclosure approach here is not mandating a single method, but pushing for exploration and really highlighting also the privacy dimensions, which are very important here. And I strongly believe you can have disclosure without revealing identity. And I think it's obviously a huge discussion at the moment uh, in the internet more broadly, 
But as we start to transpose this into the question of synthetic media, really thinking about how we explain to people that media making is more complex, we make available the signals, but we do that in a way that's human rights protecting is an incredibly important point of emphasis. And I hope as this framework builds out, you know, given this cross-sector collaboration, there'll be a real ability to continue to explore that. You also, you know, have a framework or ideas on what distribution channels should do. You break that down into active distribution channels, so things like media institutions. On some level, those, you know, ideas look a little bit like the guidance towards creators themselves. But then there's passive distribution channels, of course, the platforms, um, social media platforms. You ask them to uh, where they can identify harmful synthetic media. Uh, make prompt adjustments. Uh, you suggest a range of content moderation interventions like labels, downranking, removal when necessary. Um, and then this emphasis on communication and education. Um, and I, I want to kind of pick up on that one a little bit. Do you think, uh, at least based on what you've seen out there and, and the two of you looking at this question for so long, do you think that the, the public uh, is ready uh, for the explosion of synthetic media, we're very obviously going to see over the next year. And do you think that that we have enough science to even understand the potential impact? So I'm so happy you asked that question, Justin, especially because we, despite being an AI institution, always underscore how important it is to evaluate the effect of these interventions on end users. So whether that's a label that conveys that something was synthetic or even the user interface that conveys, let's say, that signal of, you know, we said tracing or provenance and where it comes from. At the end of the day, there's a big question about one, how do people interpret that? And two, do people care? And we've conducted research in the past on how users or audiences encounter different labels or mechanisms for conveying manipulated media. The idea being that there's this very visceral sense that adding a label might solve the problem. If you just tell something that something was somebody that something was synthetic, you've solved the problem. And I've 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 mentioned this um, anecdote often, but when we conducted one of those papers that um, we published in Kai, a big computer science journal, there's this anecdote that that is just so palpable in my thinking on this topic, where a audience member we were interviewing who encountered the Twitter manipulated media label, which was an indicator that Donald Trump's videos were manipulated media that wasn't even synthetic. That individual thought that label implied that Twitter was telling him the media was manipulating him. And that's just a testament to how important it is to understand people's biases, their premise, their attitude towards the institution or actor who maybe created the material. Justin, if there's a synthetic audio tape of the Tech Policy Press podcast, I may find it endearing or entertaining because I know you. But if I came from someone whose perspectives I didn't like, I may have a different attitude. So it's just um, a testament to how some of the biases people bring to bear already on content may come in as it relates to synthesis. And it's just quite hard to make sense of this visual reality that Sam was talking about as things that get synthetically generated become more prevalent, we might get more used to it. And we might also, as you've probably spoken about the liar's dividend on this podcast, be more distrusting of real or authentic material as well. And that is a tipping point that while we might not have seen it, we all have to be prepared for as it relates to the growing ubiquity of these types of media. I want to in this conversation by maybe just asking you to cast your minds forward. You've thought about this a lot. You've been talking about this problem for a long time, five years, 10 years down the line. Um, and maybe I'll ask you two kind of questions in one, which is how do you feel about the media and information environment that we're headed into? You know, are you optimistic, pessimistic? And then I suppose I'll I'll kind of give you a little bit of a prompt in that I have this sort of sense that we're going to head into a space where there are responsible creators and platforms and media institutions who follow a lot of the types of ideas that you've laid out here. And then there's everyone else. I just see a lot of signs, not just in this particular domain, but also when it comes to the kind of cacophony of machine-generated content and how we'll deal with that. 
I see a lot of signs that we may be headed towards a kind of very bifurcated uh, media and information ecosystem where on the one hand, we've got trustworthy uh, environments, platforms, brands, creators, institutions, and then we've got sort of everyone else. And I, I wonder if that's something that you see, if you see a similar future, how you're thinking about these next few years. Justin, I think um, I'll say first that I think we're in, and I, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that the focus of the way we talk at Witness is prepare, don't panic, which I think has been a really important framework against the kind of the rhetoric and the hype around synthetic media and generative AI. I think we're in the final stages of preparation if we want to think about the future five or 10 years down the line. We, th- th- and that's really why it's important to be thinking about the infrastructure and the norms right now, right? What are we really thinking about as the infrastructure and the norms that help scaffold a future we want as we move into more pervasive uh, synthetic media or more complex media environment? As to where we'll be in five to 10 years, I guess I also look at it through the lens of um, individual and consumer and citizen journalism creativity and uh, voice. And, and I have some hope. I'm going to give the hope first, which is I think there is some reason to believe that we may move into a more um, nuanced way in which people understand how media is created if the tools allow it, right? And I think you see the first signs of it in the way people create media on TikTok, right? The kind of layers of media creation that are occurring um, in a typical video on TikTok. It's, it's showing the work in a way that would have been unimaginable in a video or a piece of media 15 or 20 years ago, or even five years ago, right? So if we actually lean into that trend, we may have a way in which the vast majority of people actually do understand media in a much more visceral and direct way in the future. Now, that doesn't address whether we have a set of trusted sources or a set of untrusted sources. I think we have a huge problem that historically has been the problem that we've seen in witnesses' work, which is a volume problem, that the most important accounts, particularly of people like human rights defenders, get lost in the volume. Um, And that is a huge concern that we see moving ahead as the volume increases, the signal to noise for critical voices who do not have institutional trust is a lot harder for them to be heard. So almost I want to flip around your question and, and your observation is actually, yes, we'll probably have a set of trusted voices that have kind of sort of carved out a space for them. Yes, at the same time, we want to work out how we preserve very critical trusted voices that are, need to contest themselves against that volume. And it's actually, in fact, the central focus of, of how Witness is envisioning its next five years. We describe it as fortifying the truth, which is actually how do you really think across the stack from infrastructure to norms, to tactics, to tools, how people are able to assert that something they're sharing is truthful, is actually the reality that was existing that they need to have seen. And I think it's going to be a challenging five to 10 years, but I think there is there is some hope that our, our culture around how we create media will evolve and that we will be able to preserve some of the key elements that are important in society. And that was so well put, Sam. And Justin, I appreciate you saying that my answer might be more complicated than just uh, total optimism or total pessimism, because like any technology, I think I have things I'm very scared of and things I am excited about. And like Sam, I'm hopeful that the capacity for people around the world to speak truth to power, to tell stories that blend entertainment and information and accurate information will will grow over time. But the key here is that as this becomes something that affects more and more people, as the media is increasingly synthetic and encountering more folks around the world, the governance of those systems must also be global, multi-stake to the myriad voices that Sam engages with on a daily basis. And at PAI, we strive to incorporate. And just one anecdote that I think shows how hopefulness and concern can exist in the same you know, space. Last year, Sam actually was on a panel we hosted with the USC Shoah Foundation, which is Steven Spielberg's institution that creates an archive of originally just Holocaust survivor testimony, but now the survivors of genocide more broadly. And that institution is both experimenting with, you know, hologram or AI generated mechanisms for telling the story of Holocaust survivors who will pass away very soon in a more creative way so that a student might be able to interact with a generative AI based version of those individuals once they're no longer here, thereby fortifying the truth, as some might argue. And at the same time, they're really scared about deepfake technology's capacity to threaten people's trust. 
in the authenticity of the real archive. And to me, that's just a really potent example of, on the one hand, the technology being an enormous opportunity to preserve the truth and tell stories in a more creative or entertaining or lasting way. And at the same time, being cautious around that same technology, weaponizing truth in real material. So hopeful and somewhat concerned at the same time and prepare, don't panic continues to resonate for the next few years or time of preparation that we hope to be working in community with lots of other folks on soon. Well, I'm certain uh, that type of project will certainly benefit from looking at your framework considerations that you put forward here. And if there's an ethical way to do it, perhaps uh, you will have helped them uh, go in that direction. So and I'm sure the two of you will be working on this uh, for years to come. Look forward to talking to you about it again soon. Uh, Claire, Sam, thank you so much. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, Justin. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.